This is The Guardian. Fjällräven! 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 Egal wie du es sagst, Fjällräven ist die etwas andere Outdoor-Marke aus Schweden. Eine, die seit 1960 zeitlose Outdoor-Ausrüstung herstellt und dabei keinen Trends nachläuft oder irgendwelche Abkürzungen nimmt. Erfahre mehr und besuche uns auf fjellräven.de. Fossil, du bist gemacht, um Orte zu erkunden, um auszudrücken, wer du bist. Du wurdest für dies gemacht, egal wohin du als nächstes gehst. Und Fossil wurde gemacht, um direkt bei dir zu sein. Wir stellen die Herbstkollektion vor. Hebe deinen Stil auf ein neues Niveau. Mit unserer zeitlosen klassischen Caraway-Uhr, gemacht, um immer gut auszusehen. Fossil. Gemacht für dieses. Besuche fossil.de, um die vollständige Kollektion heute zu erkunden. Hello and welcome to the Guardian Football Weekly Unbridled Joy at St. James's Park. There won't be many Champions League games where Dan Burns scores more than Kylian Mbappe, when Sean Longstaff dominates the midfield and when Fabian Scher sticks one in the top corner in injury time while falling on his arse. We'll praise Eddie Howe, wonder what it all means for PSG while, of course, remembering the geopolitics of it all. Same goes for Man City, of course. Winning in Leipzig, Rico Lewis suggests he might be worth a look for England with a brilliant display in midfield. Julian Alvarez once again the centre-forward with the answers. Elsewhere, Groundhog Day for Celtic as they lose late on to Lazio. We'll look ahead to the Premier League weekend, discuss Jurgen Klopp asking, but not really asking for a replay with Spurs, celebrate FIFA giving the 2030 World Cup to Czech's notes six, bracket six countries in two different continents. We'll take your questions and that's today's Guardian Football Weekly. On the panel today, Nicky Bandini, welcome. Morning. Filippo Clare, bonjour, ça va? Ça va, ça va, bonjour à toi. Yes. Mark Langdon, hello. Hi, Max. Uh, let's start St. James's Park. Cahoon says, as one of the few remaining listeners from the evil club city, please can you talk about Miggy and Fab for at least 10 seconds? Alex says, can you please talk about Sean Longstar for the full hour? And Chris says, as your only Newcastle listener, can you please acknowledge the insane job Howe has done? Lascelles was our captain in the championship. Six of our seven players wouldn't be taken by any other Premier League club. He's taken from the bo- he's taken us from the bottom of the league to smashing PSG in two years. Um, it's the first time they've hosted a Champions League game in 20 years. Their biggest win in the competition proper, I think, in the Philippe Auclair derby. Um, it is, Mark, a... a uh, it's a fairy tale, right, for them to hammer PSG with goals from these local boys and share in the last minute, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I'll let um, Philippe maybe um, the, dispel the, the, the fairy tale um, aspect of it. But if, you know, in, in terms of how that played out just last night with, um, as one of the listeners said there, you know, um, Lascelles, Danburn, Longstaff, I don't think that there would be a, a long queue um, for, for those players in, in you know from other Premier League um, teams. And the way that they played last night against PSG um, was fantastic. I think that is full credit to Eddie Howe, the bravery that they showed to really push up on on Paris and make the game uncomfortable for them, roared on by the crowd. It kind of worked perfectly together where, um, you know, the the crowd was so pumped up. Every tackle was being cheered as if it was a, a goal. They were aggressive when they needed to be aggressive without overstepping the mark um, and then took their chances fantastically well. 
and the, the goal scorers, you know, three of those, um, you you just really would have struggled to to, to have guessed. I mean, and we're on, um, you know, scored a, a lovely goal um, last week, wasn't it? So um, he he's in good form. But the, the others, Longstaff and and Burn, both Newcastle supporters. Uh, Burn, you know, I think it's well documented. He's family he's sort of been season ticket holders, and he was let go by the club when he was um, a kid, and he's, he's sort of gone full circle and back there. I mean. Those are great moments, and um, you know they're now in control of a, the most difficult Champions League group. They've sorted out their Premier League form. They've knocked uh, Man City out of the League Cup. Um, you know, the, the, the season's looking good for them. Mm. Dan Byrne wanted that header so much, Nicky, didn't he? And, and uh, he said, "Look, crazy. It's not sunk in. I'm speechless. Playing for Darlington. You're just trying to survive at that level and get a pro contract. I've had an up and down career, so just to play Champions League football." I'm just very, very proud. Um, before we go to Philippe, I mean, it is a his 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 grin was his grin was beautiful to watch. Yeah, I I think there was a lot of beauty in this, and I I I think I'm going to agree with a bunch of what Philippe says as well. But I I think it's it it feels like two completely parallel stories in my mind at this point because there's there's the ugly story which is about ownership and which is about things that go on above above the sort of level of the players, things they go and control, things fans don't control. And there's the part of it that's that's fandom, that's football, that's that's the reality of people's lives. And Dan Byrne talking about getting released by Fulham at 25 years old in that conversation as well. And and here he is scoring for his club, not any club, his club in the Champions League against PSG who have the best player in the world playing for them. It's 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 an astonishing story. And 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 look, you know, I I've just come back from from Naples watching Napoli play against Real Madrid and and that's a city that I think has such a unique relationship with football and has such a re- unique relationship with having one club that dominates everything and and there's such a a parallel I think for me there with with having just seen that and I, I wasn't in Newcastle for this game but I I definitely feel like you can relate to that that absolute all-consuming fandom I, I, a story popped into my mind just this morning as I was as I was coming up. Um, I've just come into Guardian Towers. I'm doing this in the Guardian offices and and coming up on the train. And I remember going to Newcastle all the way back in. Um, this is going to age me, but 2003-04, I was a student. I went to Newcastle. It was one of the first times I'd been up to Newcastle. And um, I was out with a, a friend and Newcastle were playing against Marseille in the UEFA Cup, as it was then. And, uh, and I remember seeing this couple and it was kind of awful but fascinating at the same time because this couple went out and you had and it, it, this is also like a, a very sexed conversation which I think is not representative there's lots of women who support Newcastle as well but it was a guy and a girl and the guy was wearing a, a Newcastle top with with the stripes on and she was dressed up to the nines and they were clearly on a date but the game was on in the pub they were in and for 45 minutes, he sat and watched the screen and did not say a word to her. <laughs> and then at halftime, they spoke and then the game came on again and he watched again. And I just, you know, look, again, I, I, I kind of didn't want to tell that story because it sounds very gendered and it's, it shouldn't be right because 100%, I know women who thought Newcastle. There are lots of women who thought Newcastle and are just as involved. But that feeling that you re- I remembered of him watching that game in the UEFA Cup and how all-consuming it clearly was for him back then just came back to me now because it's the Champions League, it's Paris Saint-Germain, it's Newcastle, and that all-consuming feeling is deserves to be as great as this, deserves to be as fun as this, and it's not going to get better than winning 4-1 against Paris Saint-Germain at home. Yeah. And actually, Philippe, 
Eddie Howe looks like he could have done it without any financial input from anyone, right? Like he's taking players who are, I mean, at best, I mean, ordinary is not fair, is it? And and, and like you can improve as a footballer, uh, you know, as Nicky says a lot of times, you, you shouldn't just judge someone as this is Dan Byrne and this is how good he is. But even still on this stage to get this out of that team is so impressive. It is very impressive. And um, I mean, even though there are some absolutely superb players, I mean, Alexander Isak is one of them. Bruno Guimaraes is a top player. But the way that you see players like Almiron or players like Fabian Scher, who would have had Fabian Scher doing, I mean, the performance last night was absolutely, I mean, extraordinary, majestic almost, which is not the word that normally would associate with Fabian Scher. So I, I don't think that this has ever been in any doubt that Eddie Howe was a very fine manager indeed. And he proved it last year, um, took them to the Champions League. I don't think there's any of us who was expecting them to do that, even though there had been a, a huge outlay of money. I mean, they spent more than 200 million net in, in, in 2022. And, and similarly, you know, by the way, Bournemouth also had spent tons of money when Maxim Demin was the, uh, the owner. But you can throw money at a football club and the team does nothing, which is, by the way, uh, what the guys on the other side were demonstrated <laughs> quite magnificently. Um, more about them in a minute. But you can, I mean, I, I, it's totally possible, as, as I said, as Antoniki said, um, it's like two parallel universes. Um, you remember, Max, we said that it was totally possible to feel complete joy, for example, when Saudi Arabia beat Argentina in the World Cup and to think this was marvellous for the Saudi, the Saudi people because there's a huge difference. A country is not a regime. That's, that's, and the problem with Newcastle is that we actually, the borders are blurred here because on one hand, Newcastle is a proper football town. People are passionate about their club and so on, as Nikki has, you know, so beautifully described. But this is actually different. But it's possible to to acknowledge the the excellence of, of the work he's done. And also uh, the huge role, obviously, uh, that the, the crowd played in that game. It's very funny because for me, it was a bit like um, a, a reverse image of what happened in Lens, between Lens and Arsenal, where you had a team... Um, which actually hadn't started the season well, which was the case of Lens, had done extremely well last season, which was the case of Lens and Newcastle, supported by uh, a public, a crowd that hadn't seen European football for quite a while, mm -hmm. absolutely passionate, two proper football cities. And in front of them, two teams who were actually surprised, I think, by the hostility and the, and the fire that was not only in the stands, but also seemed to seep down from the stands and, 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 and be swallowed whole by those players who became different and which is rather beautiful I mean of course what was missing is that when Burns scored he should have taken his shirt off and we should have a portrait of Mohammed bin Salman underneath or something like that or they should or they should have done a dance like Ronaldo did on Saturday day by the corner flag um, and this, this didn't happen Mark you sort of think that sort of Sunday league shout about wanting it more feels so ridiculous at this level of football but it and it's linked to the crowd as well, I know. But, like, you did feel that they just want, they wanted it a bit more. I mean, there's other parts to the game, of course, but that is a big part of this. It felt like it, yeah, it felt like it mattered um, more to Newcastle. I mean, even at the end of the game, Mbappe was shrugging his shoulders, um, unable the first really Frenchman to, as he was walking off the pitch. Yeah, he was playing up to, to the trademark there. I... 
I think there was a, some of that, but I also, um, if, if we're sort of looking at it maybe from the PSG angle, when the team came through, I was very surprised that Luis Enrique had moved away from um, the kind of 4-3-3 formation that he'd been using um, and Vitinha had been dropped to the bench and they had four forwards on the pitch, Muani and Dembele, Ramos and Mbappe, which um, in some ways is brave um, for, from Luis Enrique, but had nobody to get the ball to those players. And every time they tried to build up from the back, it felt like they were a player short because Mbappe doesn't come deep. Um, he's not a sort of natural number 10. Muani and Dembele are only thinking about going forwards. Um, and and yeah, they, they were unable to, to build up in a kind of normal way. And so I felt that um, Luis Enrique played into Newcastle's hands as well. And you know, that encouragement they got from the Marquinhos sort of sloppy ball out. But he did that because he didn't have enough players in midfield to, to actually play to. Just, to, you know, that, that meant that Newcastle just stepped onto PSG even more. One other um, Newcastle player that we haven't mentioned, but I thought Anthony Gordon probably um, just epitomises kind of that Newcastle performance. Just ran around um, and gave everything for, I think he was substituted right, it was 92, 93 minutes. But you know, he was somebody that was being mocked when, um, when, when Newcastle paid the money that they did for him. He then had a very good European under-21 championship and, and seems to be really sort of growing into that position in the Newcastle front three. Um, yes, I think Newcastle wanted it more, but I do think if Luis Enrique had his time again, he would have picked a different team. Maybe there's a third track to this story without wanting to sort of go too quickly from what Newcastle did right to what PSG did wrong. I mean, this 4-2-4 was, was nonsense. Trying to get away with that sort of approach, playing with four attackers in your team, trying to 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 think you're going to play with a team that light in such a, a, a raucous and and on top of you atmosphere and when you know you're going to get pressed you know you're going to give your, your you know your defenders aren't going to have much time on the ball and they're going to need to release it quickly and they haven't got options in midfield to do that because you've got so many forwards on the pitch I think it was a crazy team selection um by by Luis Enrique and and, and definitely punished he was actually asked Nikki about um the tactics after the game and his response was um uh, sibylline, um, not sublime, sibylline. And because he was asked, you know, what about the tactics? Don't you think they were responsible for, for, for the defeat? And he said, I am the first person responsible for the result, the first and last person responsible for that. Can you explain tactically how you set up? Well, we played with the same system during the whole game, was the only thing he said about it, which is extraordinary. And, and, and he said, there was no problem with the attitude of my players. Uh, you probably saw another game. We had an optimist and we were looking forward. Uh, the result is fair, but the, the scoreline doesn't reflect what we saw. I'm happy with what my players uh, have done. Uh, I mean, it was quite extraordinary. I know he can be like that. He's not really the most uh, open of managers. And, and he's also, he takes a while to, um, he chooses not to say anything to his players after games because he feels he's too emotional. So he was still probably, in a way, distilling what he wanted to tell them. But um, I have to say the comments in the French uh, media this morning, uh, be it uh, the press or the radio or, or television or social networks, uh, the finger is pointed at players like Bappe and, and Colomwani, but especially at Luis Enrique, because to be honest, the, we were starting to see, we were talking two weeks ago about PSG, mm. which was starting to take shape. 
with yeah, Virginia, worrying, by it the way. It was worrying. Yeah. It was worrying. And they had they had a midfield and they had, you know, they had it made sense. Players were coming back into um, in good shape and so forth. But the thing as well, the the players didn't react when they f- they must have realized they were in a bit of a of a pickle in that atmosphere with players in front of him in front of them who was who were clearly inspired by the occasion but there was no reaction from Luis Enrique that's that's also very strange there there was no attempt to actually rejig his team or to change to change a few things they carry on playing the same way and in a way i think what Eddie Howe had done he watched obviously PSG very intently what they've done with Enrique and he saw that it was a team that did commit mistakes when it was put under pressure and they were very good at doing that and very good at exploiting that and and maybe they were a bit lucky with a few things you think well what if Dembele's a mm-hmm. chance goes in at the you know uh, to start with uh, what is Marquinhos doing even if he doesn't have uh, a midfield player to pass on to uh, will Fabian Cher ever score another goal like this? <laughs> uh, with, honestly, his two legs are about uh, one yard apart, which is not the way that my coach was telling me to shoot, but uh, there you go. But it's beautiful. And also, Cher winning the... This said, that goal, and, I, I, you know, please talk about it, uh, Max, because it was a beauty, but was absolutely... Uh, was an exemplar of what the game was about. A, it's a player jumping from his central defensive position to win the ball in midfield, carrying on forward, exchanging a one-two, and then lodging in the top corner. This is not going to happen every night, is it? Also in this group then, um, Dortmund nil, Milan nil, two goalless draws. Not an ideal start for Milan, Nicky? No, I, I think this actually has put them a bit behind the eight ball. And I think there's a real frustration at Milan because because they've created lots of chances across these two games um certainly in the first half of this game you could say that Dortmund created some chances as well I think Marlon started the game really well um but by the end when you looked at the the, the sort of the balance sheet as it were there was a chance for Giroud in the first half that he, he really really should put on target he's so close to goal and he manages to hook it over there was one for Chukwese in the second half where he was just absolutely or really had time to get his feet right and 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 shoot with a, the goal at his mercy and, and, and didn't do that, got his feet all wrong. Uh, they've had 39 shots across these two games against Newcastle and, and Dortmund did not manage to put the ball in the net. And I think there's a real feeling that this could easily be six points and instead it's two points. And in this group, that's potentially a problem. Now, the thing which I think I said after the first game when Milan drew at home is, of course, it's it's a better result for Newcastle than it is for Milan because it's a draw away from home for Newcastle. But I said it's not necessarily a disaster for Milan because I think that there's actually, despite this being the group of death, there's some teams in it that, that are more flawed than people realise. And I think Dortmund in this game defensively were, were all over the place. And, and I think that is the flaw they have. We've seen Paris Saint-Germain's flaws against Newcastle. So there are flaws there in other teams. But... Milan have to show they can punish them and Milan have their own flaws. And that's why Newcastle are now in a very strong position in this group. Huge win for them. Um, And I think everyone else is going to be fighting for that second spot possibly. But the two games now, back-to-back PSG against uh, Milan are probably going to determine which of those two teams is in a position to to fight for one of those qualifying spots. All right, that'll do for part one. Part two, we'll begin with... Fjell Raven. Fjell Raven. Fjell Raven. Fjell Raven. 
Egal wie du es sagst. Fjellräven ist die etwas andere Outdoor-Marke aus Schweden. Eine, die seit 1960 zeitlose Outdoor-Ausrüstung herstellt und dabei keinen Trends nachläuft oder irgendwelche Abkürzungen nimmt. Erfahre mehr und besuche uns auf fjellräven.de. Dein Podcast macht kurz Pause. Hate Speech dagegen hört nicht so einfach auf. Wer hat dir überhaupt erlaubt zu reden, Schlampe? Verzieh dich in die Küche, bevor ich herausfinde, wo du wohnst und dir... Dir persönlich Danke sage. Hör nicht auf die Hater. Du machst einen richtig guten Job. Und wir stehen alle hinter dir. Wir alle entscheiden, ob wir das Netz dem Hass überlassen. Werde Teil der Telekom-Initiative gegen Hass im Netz und setze ein Zeichen. Telekom. Manchester City's win in Leipzig. Welcome to part two of the Guardian Football Weekly. We're going on tour. We're in London. Philippe is there with me and Barry, Troy Townsend, Ellis James on the 13th of November. Um, John Bruin, Nader Manuha and the Will Unwin anecdote in Manchester on the 15th. Of course, Mark Nandon and Nikki's shows all sold out. But you can watch the Brighton show with Nikki and Johnny Lou um, on the internet. It'll be available for a week after we've finished uh, as well. So go to theguardian.com slash fwtour23 and buy your tickets. Uh, RB Leipzig 1, Manchester City 3. Um, I mean, I thought Rico Lewis, Mark, was the story of this game for me. If I you try and look at a Man City win and go, okay, what's new, what's different? When we saw the team sheets, we're like, oh, he's probably playing in midfield. And he was just a, a total joy. Yeah, I knew, you know, sort of, they didn't miss Kevin De Bruyne. They didn't, um, you know, it was it was it was a different type of performance. It was more like a Foden type, you know, the way that he was getting the ball in tight spaces and um, you know finding teammates or sort of beating the the, the Leipzig um, press. When I saw the team sheet, I thought he was going to play as a defensive midfielder, and maybe Guardiola was thinking, well, Rodri's out of the Arsenal game. It didn't work against Wolves. Um, you know, could Rico Lewis play? Um, in, in Rodri's position, because when he'd previously been in the team, he would move into that kind of defensive midfield position, usually from the, the fullback area. Um, but he was so much more than, you know, just a, a defensive midfielder. In fact, he was, he was City's biggest threat. Um, he was involved in basically everything that they did well. Guardiola does like to hype up players and so you sort of take what he says with a pinch of salt. He admitted that himself, didn't he, the other week with Nunez when he said, oh, actually, um, you know, I called him one of the best players in the world. I, I didn't actually mean it. <laughs> um, but he has been, he, he's been um, sort of glowing about Lewis for a long time, even last season when he was putting him in the team um, and there were question marks as to why he was doing that. He was adamant that he he was good enough um, to play for Manchester City and he would be um, a star. And this was sort of a, a big step along that way. I suppose the problem is when will we see him next? I mean, could, could he play him against Arsenal, or you know, do we have to wait sort of two, three, four weeks um, to, to to see him play again? Um, on that evidence, you would say he, he could definitely step in and play instead of Nunez or uh, Kovacic or or any of those Man City players because he was brilliant. I mean, De Bruyne is injured. Rodri is suspended against Arsenal. You see the performance. Mm. I mean, it's just... I mean, I suppose it shouldn't, Philippe, be a surprise that someone uh, who's got into Man City's 25 is good at football, right? Like, like that, that, that sort of feels like a given. <laughs> but that good uh, yeah. is 
um, is pretty damn amazing. And if I ever hear, if I ever hear again that uh, England is missing talented midfielders, that's it. I've had it with this. This is, I mean, this is terrifying. The the only thing, I mean, the one you have to feel for is Calvin Phillips, because good luck to you, my friend, um, with this this boy actually being able to play in that position. But the thing, actually, Guardiola, after the game, said the only thing he misses is a bit of height. That's the, the problem. But that he can basically play in almost any position, which makes him, makes him the, the perfect Guardiola player. Uh, also, because he has the tactical intelligence to fit in any position. It's just that, not just that he's got the, the technique. And by the way, I absolutely love the way he carries the ball. Some players have got this almost effortless way of carrying the ball as if they never never need to look at it, ever, ever. Uh, and he's one of those. Um, I mean, it's absolutely glorious to watch. I feel, like, um, feel like Pep has got quite a lot out of some short players in the past. <laughs> yes. Like, like, <laughs> you can say you know, that. And, you know, and some players with a low centre of gravity are, are, are quite good, aren't they? And I guess the thing is, Nicky, from a Leipzig point of view, is you can be good for 20 minutes, right? They hadn't didn't get a kick in the first half. Then they came out of the traps, they scored, and you thought, oh, hello, this is interesting. You know, they, they sort of did a similar thing last year because these guys play each other every year. But then suddenly, out of nowhere, Alvarez, who is really just kind of slowly but surely being... Is it slowly but surely he hasn't won the World no, Cup? Not, that's not that slowly, no, is it? Not, not slowly, not slowly. <laughs> Quickly and surely, it's just proving that he is also good. I mean, Haaland gets all the headlines, but, you know, Alvarez is wonderful. Yeah, I mean, Alvarez is a, is a brilliant footballer. On, on Leipzig, I, I, um, I think you're dead right. This is this like fascinating sort of parallel actually coming from talking about the Newcastle game to talking about this one, because actually you can shows what you can do with statistics. Like if you looked at just the possession numbers for this game and the Newcastle PSG going, they look quite similar, except PSG have the possession against Newcastle mm. and Man City have the possession against Leipzig. And you see what a difference that can mean in terms of control of the game, how much possession you have. Um, because yeah, I think Leipzig had to play this for a, a at best a 20 minute spell or, or for, for taking the chance where they could. And, and Dependa did take that goal really well. I thought, his little sort of sh- shoulder barge into the defender before he scores felt personal. You know, it was a real like, out of my way, I'm doing this. Um, and at that moment, you think, okay, maybe this team's got got that that cynicism about it and knows how to get a result here. But City are just are just too good, aren't they? And as you say, Alvarez is is a outrageously um, good talent to not to not be the top talent at a club, frankly. Um, and uh, and now Rico Lewis as well. Um, I don't know Max because of course. Not everyone who listens will know this, but when we did Stan on on Tuesday and and Bellingham scored, I remember your first reaction then was to talk about how many World Cups uh, Bellingham yeah. was going to win for England. So how many <laughs> is it now with uh, Rico Lewis as well? Well, I mean, it's interesting actually, Mark. Like Southgate names his squad today. I mean, he'll have probably watched that game. Might might seem quick, but you sort of think it might be worth looking at, right? We're we're, we're wondering who's you know. Surely Rico Lewis is a better bet than Henderson now. Max, I'm, I'm nervous about talking about England squads because the last time I, you asked me a question about an England squad that was announced on the same day, um, it was about Ivan Tony, and I said, oh, no, um, Southgate won't pick him because um, of all the issues. And he did, and it, it aged um, <laughs> not the best. So uh, I'll, I'll sit on the fence as to whether uh, Rico Lewis right. should be in um, at this right. point. I think if he plays even semi-regularly for Manchester City between now and the end of the season playing at the level that he has, then there is an obvious spot for him in what 
you know, it, it, within that midfield, because I don't see how you can keep picking Phillips if, um, you know, if he's just not playing for what would be two seasons. And Henderson, um, you know, is, is playing in a league that um, is not going to put him in the best shape um, for a European Championship. I mean, it's only one game and, you know, consistency and getting course, in that yeah. City team is, is very difficult. But um, the, the talent is obvious. Abu Dhabi beat um, the fizzy drinks. Um, you know, just worth, just worth, because I can see Newcastle fans going, hang on a second. You talked about Saudi Arabia when we won. You don't talk about Abu Dhabi with Manchester City. It's worth, if you're going to emphasize it once, you should be at least be consistent. Uh, also in this group, um, a 2 2 draw between uh, uh, Red Star Belgrade and Young Boys. Uh, Fred says, um, now we've done City and Newcastle. We've seen Arsenal and Manchester United yesterday. Um, the question of the, the week, I think, how would Mark rank the four English Champions League team performances in terms of sausages? This week, uh, <laughs> over to you, Mark. Well, there, there, there's a sporting saying, isn't there, about you don't care how the sausage was made as long as it tastes good. Sort of, I suppose mm. that would be the Mourinho uh, way of thinking <laughs> about football more than um, Pep Guardiola. And um, so, I've had a think about uh, this one. So, I've gone for Manchester City <laughs> as the Greg sausage roll um, right. in all of this because it doesn't matter where you are; it kind of always tastes the same. Um, you know, it's very consistent. Um, you know, you don't mind it, but maybe it's getting a little bit boring um, now. Um, so I've gone for that. I think Newcastle uh, it would be my favourite sausage, which is the honey and mustard one. Um, you know, a butcher's honey and mustard sausage. Yeah, okay. you've got the sweetness of those strikes, the hotness of the the crowd as well. So I think the honey and mustard um, works well for that. Um, Arsenal, I've gone for a sausage in batter um, that, that you get from say a, a fish and chip shop because. It started off quite well. When I have the first couple of bites of a sausage in batter, I think, okay, you know, this is good. The more you eat of it, the kind of stodgier it gets. And then the, the sort of the after effects are not the best. And, you know, Saka's injury maybe sort of plays into that. Um, and Manchester United, I've gone for um, one of the most disgusting um, pieces of meat that I've ever eaten. Um, and that was a turkey sausage. I was in Orlando in one of those breakfast buffets that Philippe um, absolutely hates, as he references in the book. And I didn't realise it was a turkey sausage. Um, and, I mean, that does not taste um, like a good sausage to me, Max. And, you know, Manchester United. I thought maybe Manchester United is a kind of, it's a really great sausage, but it's one that you left in the oven overnight. And then, <laughs> and then you come back and you think, might still be all right. <laughs> You know, and then, you know, and it cost a lot of money, right? It did cost a lot of money. It used to be great. And now it's just leathery and falling apart. And No, I think we have to pay homage to, uh, to Mark's astonishing knowledge of world sausages because we were talking about this before, the, before we started recording. And I, I said, uh, what would be PSG's um, sausage? And Mark got it first time. No cue, whatever. It says it's andouillette. Now, if you've never had Andouillette, and if you're not French, and if you buy supermarket Andouillette, I won't say anything more. You won't think that you're preparing it in the kitchen. I think you're preparing it in, yes, well, in that other place. So uh, I I just, I wanted to give... Are they popular? They're very popular. And when they're properly made, they're absolutely astonishingly delightful and and, and wonderful. But unfortunately, most of them aren't. But I mean, I I had to salute Mark's extraordinary knowledge of the sausage world. It's fantastic. There's there's nothing Mark doesn't know about meat. Let's be honest about this. I I wasn't surprised. I would have been surprised if he hadn't known, to be brutally honest. Uh, To Group E, um, Atleti and Lazio are are tied on four points. Feyenoord on three, Celtic 
Uh, once again, zero points. They lost 2-1 at home to Lazio. Now, Fergie says, why is every single one of Celtic's Champions League games the same? Play fairly well, create chances that we don't take, give away sloppy goals, lose. I'm starting to get quite disheartened by the same thing year after year with no change. And it's heartbreaking, Nicky, isn't it? Because not only did they go ahead with a lovely goal, they also had that goal disallowed for offside. The guy celebrated for about 25 minutes. You're like, ah, oh. and then right at the death, one of those headers that takes an hour to go in. Yeah, I mean, it's it's, it's actually, there's a parallel um, opposite universe that Lazio are living in where they play badly and then score in the 95th minute because, of course, it was a goalkeeper goal from um, Providell that got them the, uh, oh, the yeah, draw against Atletico in the first round. And here, Pedro in, in the 95th minute um, gets them the win. And, and I'm not convinced. I mean, this is, you know, the reality of football and the reality of a group stage and and draws and how much difference that makes in terms of your prospects. But comparing Milan and Lazio's performances from the Italian perspective in the Champions League, it, it's it's night and day. Milan is vastly superior, yet Lazio are now in a good position in their group with four points and Milan have two points and are struggling because because of their opponents and because in the end, sticking the ball in the, in the net is quite important. Um, and and I, I think a moment of just Champions League sort of familiarity, I suppose, for Pedro, who did turn down Saudi money um, in in the summer to to hang around and, and play this season in the Champions League. So, um, yeah, very cruel on Celtic. I thought they were the better team in this game. I thought that that first goal was such a really well-constructed goal with them uh, building up to Farashi putting it in. I thought Brendan Rodgers got some things right tactically. I thought that the press was putting Lazio under... Um, some real difficulty in in large parts of this game, and it felt like there was this sort of fairly aimless game plan from Lazio of just getting those long balls into Immobile, who hasn't looked good all season, really. Which isn't to say Celtic were brilliant because they weren't, but I thought they were the better of the two teams for for, for big parts of the game, and uh, no reward for it in the end. Uh, also in this group, Atleti beat Feyenoord three uh, two. Um, it's nice to see Morata scoring goals, Philippe, isn't it? You know, just uh, sort of smiling, yeah. not looking bereft like and, it was at Chelsea. And the second one, my goodness, that's that is some yeah. goal, by the way. It is absolutely what a cross. We've, yeah, we've talked with Sid uh, about about Morata, and it is it is rather lovely to see this player who has this uh, droopy like expression has had it for his whole career, and then suddenly <laughs> he seems to have found a place where he can fully express himself. And but there were a couple of other players I thought in that game who uh, reminded us of how splendid they were. I think Antoine Griezmann again. I mean, how often have we said that? And it's not just for his his goal, which is, you know, really, really smart. I don't know if there's a more intelligent player than Antoine Griezmann in world football, to be honest, but wherever he plays, the influence he had. And the other, because we haven't, we used to speak about him as the best goalkeeper in the world. And then for some reason, he's gone off the radar a little bit. But Oblak, my goodness, he had some game last night. And um, it was actually terrifically entertaining which is not exactly perhaps what we were expecting from an Atletico Feyenoord game mm. uh, in Group H uh, Barcelona 1-0 at Porto I suppose the big controversy of this game Mark was the the handball Cancelo handballs it in the box gives away a penalty which is given uh, by Anthony Taylor I think and um, but then they see that a Porto player has handled it just the key yeah and, and he's to me he's controlled it on his Sort of upper left peck shoulder. Yeah. So first thing to say is that although Anthony, Anthony Taylor was ref, it wasn't an English uh, person on VAR with mm. him, so okay. uh, we can't put the boot in there. 
Was it Duranio <laughs> Inglaterra? Yeah, <laughs> yeah um, I'm not sure what the communication was like. I felt like I I'd sort of, and I know that Philippe disagrees, but I did feel like it was handball. Now, whether it was clear and obvious error um, to overrule it, I'm not so sure. But it was the way that the ball kind of came down off of that what would have been a chest control. It felt more natural for it to have been used by the arm, in in my opinion. But it, it felt it felt fifty fifty, and I think there are you know many people that sort of you know. Are, are, angry at VAR for for, get, for meddling, I suppose, in what would be, um, you know, just those 50-50 calls that you, you're not quite sure of. And, and uh, that was maybe one of those. Also in this Barca game, uh, Philippe, the tackle by Jules Koundé. Yes. Um, I, I, I still don't know. I've watched it about 10 times, how he does that, because he's behind the attacker. It is not in the right position. And he manages to put a tackle with his foot off the ground mm-hmm. and with the studs to push the ball away from the attacker who is about to basically to, to score. And I think at the moment, first reaction is, oh, that's a pen. That's a pen. Then you see Kunde's reaction, who is screaming like he's scored the winner in, in a World Cup final. You realize, no, I've just actually seen one of the greatest tackles I will see this year. And you know what? Deschamps uses him at right back. I had to say that. I mean, when you see what he can do at centre-back, he's just one of the very, very, very best. But there you go. Pepe's a star. Pepe doesn't believe it. He kind of doesn't get the the shot away. And Kunde had already been yellow-carded. It was inside (laughs) the penalty box. So it could have been a kind of disaster moment for him where he gives away a penalty and gets sent off. Um, And then probably Barca don't win the game, maybe even lose it. But... Um, yeah, it was definitely a goal-saving tackle for sure. Incredible game in Antwerp. Uh, they were 2-0 up against Shakhtar, ended up losing 3-2. Uh, Toby Alderweireld had a chance to make it 3-3, missed a penalty in the last minute. Uh, as we've said before, an incredible achievement for Shakhtar to be in this competition. They don't get to play their home games mm. uh, in their home ground, of course. Um, so I think not a lot of people expected them to get many points. So to get their first win on the board and still be in contention is a, a, a great achievement. Before we move on from part two, some very sad news from Leighton Orient. A lot of you got in touch um, on Tuesday night. Uh, the fan who was uh, attended to for a medical emergency um, during their game with Lincoln has passed away. Uh, he was 74-year-old Derek Reynolds. Uh, he received treatment in the East Stand. Uh, 20 fans had to run onto the pitch to alert the ref um, about the incident to try and get him to halt the game. There was some miscommunication. I think the ref tried to start the game again and fans were desperately trying to say, listen, stop the game. The game is abandoned eventually. Uh, Leighton Orient said Derek was a lifelong O's supporter. He lived in Osborne Road, a short walk from the ground for many years. As well as being a lifelong fan, Derek was heavily involved in the club and managed the club's tannoy system during the 90s. Uh, They will pay tribute to Derek on Saturday ahead of their game against Reading. Um, And that'll do for part two. We'll look ahead to the Premier League games in part three. Welcome to part three of the Guardian Football Weekly. Uh, before we look ahead to Arsenal Man City, we should probably um, uh, talk about Jurgen Klopp uh, in this press conference at the Europa League game, which may have happened uh, against Union Saint-Gerois before you listen to this pod. Oncoming Storm says, what's more embarrassing, Klopp saying the Spurs game should be replayed or Barry on a train in Munich. Um, K-Mam says, if Mark could go back and replay eating a vegetable he disliked and replace it for one he'd prefer, what would that be? I mean, for balance, after tweeting that 
Uh, I tweeted that I thought it was very unhelpful of Klopp to say uh, he wanted a replay. A lot of people said I needed to give my head a wobble, wobble and that I was a complete moron. Um, he said something like this has never happened, so that's why I think a replay is the right thing to do. Um, I'm not angry with anybody at all. They made a mistake. They felt horrible that night. I'm 100% sure that's enough for me. Nobody needs further punishment. It feels, Nicky, really... Un- it feels to me unhelpful, and it, and it feels to me that although this is a different kind of mistake and an unprecedented mistake, there's no real difference between the fact that Liverpool should have been one up in this game in the same way that when Brentford equalised against Arsenal last year, it should have been offside and it wasn't because they drew the lines on the wrong player or something. And Arsenal should have remained one up. I can't see a tangible difference, but I may be a moron who needs my head a, needs to give my head a wobble. I think we can acknowledge difference in in the circumstance of it there there is difference in the fact that there were people in that officiating crew who knew in real time that this decision was wrong and it and it didn't mm-hmm. get applied that is that is um a situation with out much comparison that that I can reach for um i also think i very willing to understand the depth of sentiment about this because first of all because premier league title races have become completely stupid and the pace you're expected to keep to keep up with manchester city is is so extreme that you know that dropping points anywhere can can hurt you so severely it feels like overwhelming which i think is part of why the reaction to this can feel extreme i also remember really vividly when italy got knocked out of the world cup by um south korea and the, the the sort of genuine feeling after that whole sort of fiasco with infamously bad refereeing and and genuine feeling in in Italy that there needed to be political consequences like there needed to be consequences with FIFA this needed to be acknowledged it needed to be so I understand that that feeling of oh we've been robbed and something awful has happened and and having a reaction to it and I think it's worth saying as well that that Klopp does sort of say in those quotes that. On the one hand, maybe there should be a replay. On the other hand, I don't think that will happen. He doesn't say, I, I'm sort of demanding this and I expect it to happen. Mm. So I think it's worth sort of like, I'm trying to be balanced about it because I think sometimes like on Twitter, everything just gets cut to five seconds of something and then shout about it rather than to actually sort of acknowledge all that context. Um, having said all that, do I think there should be a replay? No, because I think you open up such a, a gigantic can of worms at that point that I think you you will lead us down a path of more and more acrimony, more and more argument, more and more sort of, um, well, they got that and so we should get this um, that that goes on forever. So I think it's not practical to have a replay. Um, but I understand the depth of upset. I understand why people feel genuinely like they've been cheated out of something. And and the one thing I would say is like the counter to it is I do remember, and it's different because this is a question of sportsmanship rather than a question of... Uh, of, of a rule being broken but I do remember Arsenal against Sheffield United in the cup and Wenger saying no 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 like we have to have a replay because we scored a goal when they weren't really playing like when they'd sort of there was that um, the ball was kicked out and they thought Arsenal were going to play it back to them and they didn't um, so there is some precedent for clubs going hang on I'm not happy and and let's fix it but I, I do think that in this case I don't know it, I, I think that the damage you could do by creating that precedent for replaying games is bigger than perhaps people have really even acknowledged. There is nothing in the regulations that would allow for this game to be replayed. Beginning of story, end of story. <laughs> but my eternal gratitude for Nikki for dealing beautifully with this with this mine which had been found on the beach somewhere on Merseyside 
which you diffused finding the green cable and the red cable and cutting them exactly how they should be cut to avoid another flare-up or explosion. But there's no, I mean, give me one one example, one, the excerpt of the statutes, regulations, the Premier League, where this would be uh, actually taken care of. There, there's none. So forget about it. I suppose that Arsenal-Sheffield United game is the one example I could think of where like, uh, if the club doing something... It was the winning team which mm-hmm. actually came and said, you know, that's not on. Uh, I think Marcelo Bielsa as well at some point uh, was talking about replaying a game. and, and other So Ange could do it. I mean, Ange is a great bloke. <laughs> he could do it, couldn't he? Yeah, Ange could do it. I mean, if, if Tottenham were to say, <laughs> oh, we want to replay that There's game. There's two people on the Zoom going, yeah, you're all right, mate. I mean, Why not? You know, Feel free, gentlemen, <laughs> you know, to do it. But uh, <laughs> I somehow doubt it's going to happen. Yeah, I mean, I mean, just on that. Obviously, it was the, the Arsenal incident was kind of seen as an Arsenal yes. error, faux pas, bad sportsmanship, rather than kind of any yes. uh, anything that you know. On, on this occasion, really had nothing to to do with with Tottenham. Um, I just in back to the the question about uh, replaying a moment. I did once um, into passing it that I thought was a potato wedge um, and I, I was, for, from the from the work canteen. And I, I, yeah, I'm happily... You could turn back the clock at any moment in your life. It would be that. Um, as Liverpool go to Brighton, which should be a very interesting game. The game of the weekend is Arsenal-Man City. Uh, I've got two Arsenal supporters uh, on this uh, uh, Zoom. Uh, Nikki, how do you feel about it? Oh, horrified, terrified, scared, of course. All the normal things that a fan should feel before their team plays in a big game. Um, of course, I... I, I'm I'm extra worried about Saka, obviously, after what happened in midweek with him going out of the game. Um, I feel like Arteta's sort of insistence that top players should just be able to play 70 games is something I struggle to go along with. I think he that there needs to be some acknowledgement of of tiredness, but obviously in this game you just want him there, and and obviously I, I hope he's okay. Um, but no, I, how would you not be scared of playing this Manchester City team? They're they're a, a juggernaut, even if they have shown this season they're not completely invulnerable they can lose games they're still the best team in the world in my opinion Manchester United Brentford Simon there's any chance you could just forget Manchester United exist until their next win I mean is it is this must win Philippe I feel like I've said that's before you know we started with the Palace game going this is a good this is a good run of games then Palace Galatasaray Brentford blah well they've lost two of them in a row yeah, I mean, uh, the problem isn't isn't every game a must-win game for Manchester United and, and has been yeah, for quite yeah. a while, I, I suppose it is. Um, I, listen, I, I really feel like um, like that, um, uh, what was her name? Margaret Dumont, you know, in the Marx Brothers films and Groucho Marx, uh, because she was talking, talking and talking and Groucho Marx asked her if she had been vaccinated with a gramophone needle because she was always saying the same thing. And... Uh, I I think we've gone over that so many times that I I don't know what to add to that. I think it's more a question with Manchester United. Is this? It's very strange. It's it's a it's a slow procession towards I don't know what. It's just a burnt. It's a burnt old sausage, Philippe, isn't it? We've got. We know what it is. Yeah, it's a burnt old sausage left in the oven overnight. Yes. Uh, Wolves Villa still with you, Philippe. You wanted to. You wanted a word on the sleeve sponsor of Wolves and Josmar's latest investigation. Yeah, um, I, I think that's important to 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 say because I I understand that um, wolves are now looking into it more uh, more in depth, which is something perhaps they could have done beforehand. But 
Um, you know, I'm involved with Yosemar in an in-depth investigation into the links between um, sports betting uh, operators, particularly illegal ones and uh, so-called grey market ones and, and big football clubs. I've been doing that for two and a half years. And one of those sponsors that I'm really interested in is 6686, which is not just the sleep sponsor of uh, Wolves, but also sponsors or is a partner of uh, Monaco in France, uh, of Wolfsburg and Bundesliga and Lazio uh, in Italy. And I won't give all the background because that's, that would be too complicated. Please have a look at the Yosimar pieces on that. But what I will say is that in the course of that investigation, I realized to my utmost surprise that this particular sp uh, sponsor, 6686 of Wolves, uh, which is licensed by the Gambling Commission after a fashion under a different name, uh, is actually showing or was actually showing live games from every single league that you can imagine in crystal quality HD on their website. I could, I, I was, you could even watch the uh, Ukrainian second division. It was absolutely, it's one of the biggest piracy operations I've ever come across. And um, uh, which creates a problem, obviously, because how can you be the partner of a company which is already operating illegally in the Far East, by the way, nobody denies that, but which also pirating uh, images from legitimate broadcasters mm -hmm. uh, from all over Europe and actually even from the Saudi League, if you can believe it, and proposing that to, to punters. 6686, I would love for the sake of balance to be able to tell you what they have to say about what I said, which are not accusations, but just facts. But unfortunately, nobody knows who they are because nobody can trace them and there's no address and there's no email and there's no phone number. It's not even a name. Mm. So um, it's amazing all these, it's amazing these companies that are impossible to find and no one knows who they are can still get money from Premier yeah. League clubs to be, you know, oh, have yeah. their names blasted on a shirt. You thought you'd have someone's number, didn't you? I mean, what you're saying is... Yes, well, you know, it's an agent who yeah. speaks to an agent who contacts the commercial department of a club and they need the money. They want the money. They don't ask questions. They've got a kind of a, a UK license, which means nothing because it's not for that domain name. So, but it doesn't matter. It's So apparently it works all right. And um, they take the money. But the problem is that now Wolves have got to do something about it. And there are other clubs in England, by the way, who have to think about it because Nottingham Forest and Leicester City also were partners of this uh, brand, because it's not uh, an operator, this brand called 6686.com. Uh, you can rest assured with the lawyers, by the way, Max, that everything I've said, and which you can read in more detail about on, on Yosibar, uh, is absolutely fact-based Uh, and is not libelous or defamatory to anybody, including Wolverhampton Wanderers, who are now looking apparently into this particular deal. Mm. Wolves in the Premier League are investigating, and uh, despite it being quite difficult to track them down, uh, Josimar has approached 6686 for comment. Uh, from, uh, you know, 6686 to 777. It's <laughs> an aeroplane, or just a pin, yeah. num a pin number podcast, isn't it? Um, Uh, you've done a piece on 777, of course, looking to buy Everton, aren't they? Yeah, absolutely. Um, um, with uh, my friend and colleague, Paul Brown, again, for Yosiba. We're very, very active at the moment. Um, and then more doubts, basically, more questions asked about how can 777 partners, who are multi-club owners, who are already in charge of uh, Genoa in Italy, uh, Vasco de Gama in Brazil, Standard de Liège and so forth, can afford uh, what, they, what, what, um, what they do and where their money comes from. Uh, we've come up, I think, with some interesting facts about 777 but 
differently this time. I don't think I'm going to go into detail, Max, because I do not want producer Joel to have to go to the lawyers no. and have a through and I don't want to be woken up in the middle of the night, mate. No, just read the piece. Read exactly. the piece. Exactly. Go to Yosimar and read the piece. There will be more coming, believe me, as well. Follow Philippe uh, on social media and uh, uh, you can see all the pieces there. Uh, the UK and the Republic of Ireland will now bid unopposed for Euro 2028 after Turkey withdrew to focus a joint bid uh, with Italy for Euro 2032. Uh, the 2030 World Cup uh, appears to be a little bit more confusing. Uh, FIFA announced the following. FIFA World Cup in 2030 is set to unite the world in unique global celebration. That's good. Um, uh, Morocco, Portugal and Spain's joint bid is the sole candidate. Um, but there'll be a centenary celebration and celebratory games to take place in Uruguay, Argentina and Paraguay, which you may or may not know are quite a long way away from Morocco, Portugal and Spain. Um, uh, they, and from each other. And from each other. <laughs> yeah, right. um, they will all qualify, those six countries. But, you know, by 2030, I think there's 286 teams in the World Cup anyway, so that's okay. So it's a, it's a 48-team World Cup there, Philippe, am I right, by then? So, I mean, that's, I mean, that's not great for the climate promises of FIFA is my first thought. And, 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 and you tend to feel it, it will pave the way for Saudi Arabia 2034. No, but that's, uh, that's the deal. Uh, the deal is that because you're going to give uh, the 2030 um, Cup to, World Cup to, you'll have a bit of Africa, obviously Morocco, uh, which has been a long-standing um, candidate for hosting the World Cup. So well done them to get it. Uh, Spain, Portugal. So you've got Europe and you've got uh, Africa. Then obviously we will have had the 2026 World Cup happening in the US, mm-hmm. uh, Mexico and Canada. So that's CONCACAF out of the way. And then you bring in CONMEBOL, which is a South American confederation, by giving them a few group games and saying, that that's it, you've had it now. Okay, so now we're going to have an, an organizer, as FIFA said in the same statement. So we call on nations from the OFC, which is Oceania, good luck, guys, and the AFC, the Asian Confederation, uh, to come forward. And lo and behold, who was ready to immediately say, me, 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 um, Saudi Arabia, which already has on its LinkedIn uh, page, which I really recommend. Everybody should be uh, subscribed to this one. It's fantastic. They've already got all the promotional all the promotional films showed. Uh, they've declared their candidacy. Uh, they already have the support of, of various people. I think Kuwait and Bahrain have declared in favor. Yeah, this is fantastic. So Saudi Arabia will have, uh, which is hosting, by the way, the FIFA Club World Cup in a few months' time, uh, will have the 2034 World Cup. And that is the really important uh, message of the day. And the thing is that it is so blatant that all we're going to do is to say, you know what, it's FIFA. We should get used to that. We're used to that. When actually what we should be doing is take the pitchforks and go to FIFA Strasse and let them know what we think about the way they, they what they do to, to football and, and the way they take their decisions. FIFA released the bid timeline for the 2034 tournament early on Thursday morning. This is The Guardian's reporting, setting a deadline of the 31st of October for potential bids to confirm their interest. Football Australia... Um, which, of course, put on a very good Women's World Cup in New Zealand. State and federal governments and potential Asian co-hosts have been given just 25 days by FIFA to decide whether they'll bid for the 2034 Men's World Cup. Uh, (laughs) A thumbs up from Philippe. The tight timeline was revealed on the same day an intention to host the tournament was announced by Saudi Arabia, which received the backing of Asia's most powerful football administrator. Football Australia's chief executive, James Johnson, said his organisation is, quote, exploring the possibility of a 2034 bid. So still up in the air. Um, yeah, World Cup in Melbourne. I mean, I, 
Bring it on. That would be fantastic. Actually, would love it. Will says, I love the pod. I have a question for Philippe. It's been quite a heavy Philippe part three. I hope that's okay. Nicky, I see Mark chuckling away. I love the pod, says Will. I have a question for Philippe. For Philippe. I have recently started dating a French girl. I now want to start supporting a French team. She is from Paris, and I don't fancy that at all. If he could recommend any team I can try and form a connection with, preferably near Paris, I would love that. Keep up the good work. You've really helped me through some seriously tough times. Glad to hear it, Will. Over to you, Philippe. Who are the good guys? I would have said until recently Red Star, but they now belong to 777, so let's forget about them. Uh, I would say you're not very far. You're direct from Paris. You're direct on the train line to Le Havre. Le Havre is the oldest French club. It was founded in 1872. It's back in the in in the Ligue in Ligue 1. Uh, it's got it's a lovely city. It's a modern city, brand new city, but the architecture is astonishing. It's a UNESCO World Heritage Site, by the way. Uh, it's by the sea, so there's loads of nice oysters from um, nearby farms, and it's the club I've supported since I was born. And a ferry, you can get a ferry, can't you, Philippe, as well? And you can get the ferry, but the ferry is for people who comes from Portsmouth and want to go to a nice place. Not the other way around. And uh, it's it's a great city. It's a great club. It's the oldest French club. And it's only like one hour and 40 minutes from Paris when the trains are on time, which is not very often at the moment. Well, two hours, let's say. Uh, so, yeah, Le Havre Athletic Club, just down the road for you. What's Pompey ever done to you, Philippe? Is, is my question. <laughs> Nothing. I was just being, I was being needlessly facetious. <laughs> yeah. And, and and good luck, Pompey. Well done, Pompey. They're doing very well. Are they doing very well in League One at the moment? Exactly. And we'll talk about them on the uh, EFL pod on Tuesday. And that'll do for today. Thank you, Nikki. Thanks. Thanks, Mark. Thanks, Max. Thanks, Philippe. Thank you, Max. Football Weekly is produced by Joel Grove. Our executive producer is Danielle Stevens. Back on Monday. This is The Guardian. <laughs> 